Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Catherine Troyer, and once again, I am delighted to be joined by Tony Tresca. Howdy. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so delighted for you to be joining us today for our discussion over... Augustine Basteria's Tender is the Flesh. I love it when we do our sort of quarterly books. I wish that you and I had time to, to be able to do more books because Tinder as the Flesh is a perfect example of things that, yes, you could make a fine film version of it and might even be a great film, but there are certain things that need to be in horror fiction. And this this book demonstrates why. I, I think what this book does so brilliantly uh, as a novel is really placing you in that headspace which is of our central character that we're that we're with marcos who is as works is in this factory system as he's a part of uh spoiler alert this industry um that skins and packages human beings for consumption because we're in a world in which cannibalism has become legal um, and so Marcus is kind of just like, he was around before this so-called, uh, government named transition in which all of the animals were deemed contaminated by a virus. Um, and so were deemed unable to be eaten by humans anymore. And so they start switching to eating human beings, but they don't call them human beings. Of course, they use different language to describe all these things, but it just puts you in the headspace of this tormented individual who knows something is not quite right, but for the time being, for financial reasons, for extreme personal trauma that this guy has experienced, uh, is forced to be complacent in the system in which he knows is wrong. I really, I do. I really love your your summaries of the text. I think you do a good job of of figuring out what it's what is at the heart, right? And at the heart of the story really is Marcos, our main character. I think there are some episodes that I don't mind people listening to if they haven't accessed the text, because even though everything we talk about is spoilers, uh, it doesn't destroy the essence of things. But if you are a reader and if you think that you would get to to a chance to read Tinder is the Flesh, I would recommend, you know, pausing this episode, go read the book. It's not a very long book. And then come back because even listening to what you said, it's so hard to, to capture in a summary the evocative nature of this book. It really all, the heart of the book, well, sometimes it's cut out of people and <laughs> held in, in people's hands. But the, the heart of the book is really in the details of this character. And I think the little things about this world that Marcos takes in, like 
they go back to this zoo constantly. A broken zoo, which is kind of a perfect encapsulation of this larger world. And we have some really quiet moments in which we see Marcos at first to kind of like just be taken in by the stillness of it and the quietness that comes from well, all the animals have been slaughtered. There's nothing else here. Then sees some animals come back again and has a tender moment with them. And the next time he's there, we see him just like these animals being killed by teenagers. And it's just like this perfect little in tiny encapsulation in tiny little moments that just happened three times in this zoo setting. And they just reveal so much about Marcos and the world. And it's just things like that that happen throughout the book that just make it such a rich text and so much more horrifying because it really gets you in the headspace of this character. Because what the the zoo scenes do that is so important is first, as Tony said, it sets up our understanding of this world in general and Marcos in specifics, understanding the relationship with animals. So mm-hmm. there's this very clearly unclear element of the book where the animals have been slaughtered The government has said it's because they had a virus. Marcos wonders very adamantly whether that is a truthful statement or a statement that actually has more to do with the fact that the government and sort of like the global powers of the world needed a a scapegoat that they could use to have a viable option for decreasing the human population, right? So, so the zoo scenes allow us to feel his sort of ambivalence against this, what he considers to be the sort of conspiracy theory. Because the transition has not been that long, it, you know, it's been within his lifetime, he remembers having pets. And so there's, you know, this, and he remembers going to the zoo with his dad and his dad has dementia. So we also get to see the ways in which this place, place becomes a place of nostalgia, but it's a broken place, right? And so it asks us to consider, can you ever return back to, to the places of our childhood? And if we do, are they always going to be broken? And, you know, at least in, in Tender is the Flesh, the answer is yes, right? That the past breaks us and, and we can't go back to it, no matter how beautiful it was. And so there's just some really beautiful imagery of like the stained glass windows and the Avery and there's like a supposed to be a depiction of Icarus and so she our author whose last name I can't pronounce correctly so I will slaughter it every time how did how are you saying it Tony Basteria okay Basteria uh she she clearly understands like how metaphor can be used to to weave together this bigger picture because you know Marcos identifies with Icarus but he also feels like He's not, you know, that that was his dad who sort of shone too bright and then sort of broke when the transition happened. And this is what just tiny little snippet of of a book that is so much more. And and it's also, I think, parts people don't focus on as much. Yeah, I mean, and I guess it's very easy to understand why you wouldn't focus on those quiet and more intimate moments in the zoo in a book that also contains many extremely graphic and detailed depictions of how human beings have normalized the process of slaughtering, filleting, and packaging other human beings for consumption, or being sold to other various distributors, such as just like skinning them alive and their skins being sold, or, you know, or if you're a celebrity in debt, maybe making an agreement with a game hunter to go out and be hunted for sport for a little while. You know, you never know what wacky world buildings will be introduced right. in this 
cannibal world that our and authors it's, created. It's a very realistic in terms of like logical, right? Like everything that she presents feels like a logical result of having there being this sort of legalization of of cannibalism. So I want to reference our scholarship before we dig deeper into the, you know, like you said, the the ripped out bleeding heart of things. Yeah. Uh, because because it's the cannibalism that that people focus on, right? So it's the cannibalism that I think we need to talk about. The scholarship that I want to bring up today is is on cannibalism because there's a lot of scholarship on cannibalism. And this is a Stoker award-nominated book by Kevin J. Wetmore called Eaters of the Dead. It just came out recently. And Wetmore does an entire examination of of who and what in horror consumes humans. And he says, you know, there's like two different classifications. There are non-human creatures that consume humans. And then there's there's cannibals, which a cannibal is, is any species that eats its own kind. And in this case, it's humans eating humans. And Wetmore gives this really lovely overview of of things, starting by asking about what it is about our obsession culturally and sort of like globally speaking with the idea of the dead being consumed. Because technically, we all all of our bodies break down, right? If if we are if we're not cremated or something like that. So technically, all of our bodies are, you know, eaten by insects or animals or whatever it might be but it's such a taboo and so he talks about the fact that you know the the issue is is that there's two taboos at place there's the t- there were two really important like mores at place and there's all the ones about death and then there's all the ones about consumption and food and he said that when you put the two together it's just this sort of volatile explosion where it's like oh but now we have too much going on right we have too many things that are traumatizing and traumatic but then he gets specifically to a section about cannibalism and i love it because he takes us all the way back to some of our earliest understandings of cannibalism and so i want to just kind of talk through some of those wetmore talks about the fact that there is a a book by a romanian philosopher and political scientist whose last name is avramescu and i uh, they wrote a book called An Intellectual History of Cannibalism. And in this book, this philosopher argues that the Greeks and Romans located their cannibal monsters and cannibal people on the margins of their world. Cannibals that live here are dangerous and scary, Wetmore says. But most cannibals live there, meaning far away at the outskirts of civilization, literally and metaphorically. So too does virtually every Western culture since. Eaters of the dead are always, quote, over there. And I thought that was really interesting because I think one of the reasons that people had perhaps had such a visceral reaction to Tinder as the flesh is that it's it's not restricted to the margins, right? Most yeah. horror that has cannibals, it's it's the zombies or the um you know the creepy family, but they're always on the outskirts, right? And it's they're not the ones that are here, right? Here is where our heroes are, um, and the people trying to protect themselves from scary things that are cannibals. But that's not what this book gives us, right? This book gives us the opposite. It it, it puts us literally in the epicenter. Most of the book is happening in a slaughterhouse. And so we have to confront that. The other thing Wetmore talks about that I think is really interesting when we think about the 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 fact that our author is uh, Argentine is that Wetmore talks about how significant our understanding of cannibalism is in terms of colonialism. Mm. And, and says that the thing is, I mean, if we go all the way back to, you know, Caliban, from the Tempest, from the tempest yeah. you know, being uh, sort of 
bastardization of the word cannibal to discussions of of ships right that would be going out to colonize and and then something happened and they ended up having to to eat some of their shipmates but there is this belief that the colonizer cannot be consumed right that that the thing that is the cannibal are the savages um there's a lot of truth uh or there's a lot of evidence to suggest that certain native american peoples did engage in either ritualized or survivalistic cannibalism but that's not why the europeans were so obsessed with it right they were obsessed with it because it proved how gross scary and icky they were and how much they deserved to be suppressed right and so there's a huge tension between the idea that the colonizer is always the subject and the cannibal is the object that must be vanquished by the colonizer. And I think you see some of that in this book because we have all of these references to global powers, right? To like the Germans and the Americans. And, and, and so she's very aware of how cannibalism would play out on a political scale. Yeah. And you hear one by one different countries, like by the end of the book, India, for example, has joined in. Exactly. This game. It's just become too profitable for them to sit it out any longer. Exactly. And the fact that India, you know, is a, a nation that has struggled with with its colonial heritage, it, it makes sense that it would be a nation that might take a little bit more time and because of their religious beliefs with, you know, adopting a cannibalist point of view. So I just think you, you said something about Basterica, the author referencing Heidegger in some of their interviews, like, I yeah. think you could just tell this is one smart cookie. Yeah, uh, in, in her interview with the Irish Times, she just talked a little bit about her research process and just like how she like div- like kind of dug deep into a history of the meat industry as well as just other human horrors, like human trafficking, war, uh, modern slavery, poverty, gendered violence, and other things when writing it. and did research in particular on the normalization process that occurred in Germany during the Nazis' rise to power in mm-hmm. integrating this book. So it was clear that a lot of real history was being weaved in throughout this book. It's not just things coming out of nowhere, which is probably why the, it makes a lot of logical sense throughout, like particularly in how it plays out on the economic and global political scales, because there's just a lot of research done from, as she references Heidegger directly, prominent political and historians um, when writing this fictional text. Yeah. And it explains why she's thought through so many of her, like, what ifs. One of the things that really caught my attention as a very, I think, clever and important detail was the there's a moment where Marcos is reflecting on the fact that you can have head, but you can't have slaves. Right. And... And that, you know, you can be penalized for and even killed for having a slave, but you can have, you know, domestic head. And and just that idea. And she, there's several points, right, where you realize that she's really thought carefully about the world. But here, here's where I think what you said is so important. She didn't have to think that far outside the box. And, and I think that's why I struggle with some people's reactions to this book. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, I think that the goodness of it is is important but more importantly i don't think she's putting anything in there solely for shock value yeah i i definitely noticed when i when i talked to people about reading this text a lot of what the reaction that they had heard was just like oh i've i've heard it's just a lot of graphicness for graphic sake or about just like 
they just do a lot of body horror in it just to like see how far they can push it and that I was all, I always found that super interesting. I was like, they were all all people who I was talking to who hadn't read it. It was just like mm-hmm. what they had heard other people describe about it. Yeah, and I, is that what you're hinting on in like this review yeah, you're about there's to bring a, up? Yeah, there's there's a mythos, right? That this is like the the most haunting, horrific, terrifying thing that you will read. Right, and and so I went in with that, like, because you're you're right. When people, even people who haven't read it, if they're they even sort of have their fingers on any of the sort of like horror fiction landscape. They've heard of it. And there's always this like, oh, yeah, you know, that's a really intense book. And it's not that it wasn't intense, but I I just felt like some people really missed the mark in, in understanding that that nothing in this book was exaggerated from things that happened. The only difference was that we either switched animals with humans, right, in the case of the slaughterhouse. Or we just made a little bit more explicit and, and legalized, right, some of our, our decisions about how we treat certain humans as as not humans. So there was a, a Goodreads review, and I don't remember who wrote it, but it was actually very eloquently written. And the the person said that if they had to give it stars, they would give it five stars because it is well written. Um, you know, it's evocative. It's doing lots of interesting and important things. But then they said that they couldn't rate it, though. And their their sort of analogy of why they couldn't rate it was they they referenced Roger Ebert, who had refused to to star the Human Centipede film. Right. And if you read Roger Ebert's review of that film, he's like, you know, it is my job to to give stars to something. But sometimes there is a film that it doesn't matter what the stars are because it it's doing so many other things and it may do those things really, really well. But I don't feel comfortable, you know, rating it. And, that, and that's a, a paraphrasing of, of what Ebert said. But, you know, basically he, he said that it's not that the film is, is a badly made film. It's that I just can't. It's kind of broken the mold for me of, of being able to rank it. And so and I, I definitely agree with with that sentiment towards Human Centipede. But this person who was referencing the Goodreads or on Goodreads who was referencing this, I felt like he missed something, right? Like, I truly think that Human Centipede, by and large, is a what if game. Like, but what if we did something just real traumatizing and just saw how far we could play that out, how much we could get away with? And they got away with a lot and it was really traumatizing. But (laughs) there wasn't necessarily like they weren't trying to question how we construct the world. No, it was right. It was just like, how many times can we make how, how many people can we connect to make the yeah. longest? How many like, people can we connect? How gross sympathy. would it be? Right. Yeah. It's all of that. Whereas Vestera, she's like, well, what if we think about the fact that we do every single one of these things every day? We yeah. just do it to animals that have been proven scientifically, like with pigs, to be almost as, as smart and very, very, very similar to humans in terms of DNA. Right. Like, so it didn't feel to me grotesque. Even though it was intense and even though it was disgusting at times to read, I felt like if I'm going to eat meat, I have to read that. Yeah. Right? Like I should have to know that. I honestly kind of like, I, I guess as a, as, a, as a vegetarian who has like, I've thought, thought about all this is kind of like a lot of the stuff that I thought about quite a bit. I did a lot of research into the meat industry and kind of wanting to learn where, particularly like when I was in high school, like learning where all of it came from. And I was I mean, a lot of the details about the growth hormones that are injected, this pinning of of animals of separately, the 
chickens getting their beaks cut off so that they won't peck at others because of how overcrowded it is, the heartless kind of natures of skinnings that kind of happen in these facilities and just the terrible nature of the so-called quote-unquote lives that many animals produce in these mass breeding and pack meat packaging factories that happen all across our country here, not mm-hmm. the same as the process in Argentina. So we can't speak directly to that process, but right. it, all of it just felt, when I'm reading this novel, I was like, it felt very familiar in a way that is not exactly, was not exactly comforting, but familiar in a way that you're like, yeah, this is someone who has done a lot of research about like how our how meat is made in this country. And I'm reading reading from a little bit more about her creative process and like seeing that she did watch a lot of and read through a lot of how the industry operates. I'm like, I also don't know if I totally get the argument that it is just like so far out there because it all seems very grounded and realistic particularly in those parts that do feature the graphic violence, grounded and realistic in a way that feels very earned. If not, yes. not exact, again, not comforting. I don't want to mistaken no. like it for like being a like, oh, I actually really enjoyed the cannibalism. Right. Yum, yum, right. Yum. No, none of that, obviously yeah. not. But yeah, you should feel uncomfortable reading those scenes, but that's that's kind of the point. Yeah, I, it's kind of like if you're if you are uncomfortable, then maybe like I don't want to I don't know how to tell you this but like have you looked around the real world like yeah do you understand that the rest of what is going on I'm like this could maybe potentially be a very uh, eye-opening experience Um, yeah and it's and again it's not just the meat right it's also as you said the leather right but it's also it's also these other things right so we we don't have a formalized system for consuming humans but but we have a lot of other atrocities that we sort of sweep under the rug like human trafficking that is still an issue and shouldn't be right like it should not be an issue in 2022 but it it's just as much if not more so or you know i mean the the number of articles recently that are talking about the the way that women in particular have have been particularly subject to risk and everything that's going on uh, in the Ukraine, right, with the the soldiers. I mean, just, you know, it doesn't take much. It just takes a casual glance on the internet to see that most of her things, most of the things happening in this book has some sort of precedent. Yeah. I think I think the other reason I didn't have a problem with the depiction of the slaughterhouse, but I think that many people did, is that, again, it's depicted as this here thing, not their thing. Right. It's described because Marcos has worked in a slaughterhouse his entire life. It's described very clinically. Right. He's like, this is our best beater or whatever the term is for like smacking someone in the forehead. He's like, he can get a whole bunch done really fast. And there's a line about like how how many that one gentleman could do in a couple of minutes. And that's I mean, there's a direct line from Texas Chainsaw that has a similar thing. Right. Where grandpa was the, the best of them all until he became feeble and creepy. And, you know, he was really good at, at slaughtering cows. So, you know, it's it's just everything we're getting feels clinical because that's part of the horror is is that I don't think it would take far for us to get there. Yeah. Basteria also kind of talks about um, how although the book is a clear criticism of the meat industry, I also wrote the novel because I've always believed that in our capitalist consumerist society, 
we devour each other. So I, I think that that also just like kind of broadens it up to like the rest of bring in the rest of the world that yes. she kind of creates and establishes here. Because although we spend so much time in this clinical setting inside the meat factory, it really is. I, I think one of the things I'm most impressed by with this book is the vastness of the world that Basteria mm-hmm. is able to establish oftentimes through just like single sentence details that are never even like explored again, but do so much to enrich the world, like little comments that will be dropped throughout by the food agency, uh, mm-hmm. specifically in Argentina or reactions from, as we were alluding to earlier, these other global powers and just the factors that have all gone into mass normalization of mm-hmm. atrocities, which I think you were already alluding to with like your broadening of this discussion to the atrocities just outside of the meat industry, just like the war that is perpetuated, these gendered violence that is still going on very much today, just all across the world. So mm-hmm. it's just so much bigger than just one industry, but we're just getting to focus on perhaps one of the worst of the worst industries yes. within a society that devours itself. And a society that assumes that if you're not willing to to partake in the devouring, something is wrong with you, right? So one of the interesting things that happens in this book is that Marcos isn't really keen on eating humans, right? right. He partially, I got the impression, he just doesn't kind of like the taste of special meat. And and part of it is, is that, you know, he's he doesn't feel comfortable because he remembers that, you know, it's not been that long. And and yet everyone, right, is constantly like, you know, you want a sample or like, why don't you want some? And so his sort of having to navigate it, we finally got into a place where it is easier to be a vegetarian or a vegan. But I grew up where, you know, most people in my life were vegetarian uh, for religious purposes. And just the number of times, well, first off, the number of times I got teased for eating meat as one of the few people who ate meat and everyone else was vegetarian. So I had like the only experience of the opposite, right? But like most people, I mean, you got teased. What's wrong with you? Why do you want to be vegetarian? You know, what's, why can't you enjoy this, this meal that was prepared? So there's so much about this that's about the devouring that is socially acceptable, right? Socially acceptable ways to, to rip people apart. And the, the whole, we haven't really talked too much about it, but the whole, you know, uh, resort hunting resort right. and how if you're super wealthy, you can pay to hunt someone. But also if you're super well known, you can choose to hopefully uh, eliminate your debt by surviving long enough in the you know hunting range. And if you survive, then your debt is cleared. And if you don't, then you know, you're you get shot and eaten. Um, well, like, and, so and then so, I guess your debt is cleared as well. And so your debt is clear. Yeah, right. Which is, you know, nice if you have family, right, that, that need it. And, and so having that element too, right, that sort of reminder that, again, that there's, it's, it doesn't take us that far away from reality, from some of these stories that keep emerging about billionaires who are hunting down some of our, of our you know, endangered animals and, and getting to do so on preserves, you know, like it's just, it's not that far from the truth. But it all is about the other ways that we devour. And I think Marissa, Marco's sister, also shows us, right? She's constantly picking at Marcos and, and like asking him, you know, to do all of these things, but not not giving back. She's not helping to take care of their dad who has dementia. Her children are terrible little creatures. And and she's constantly her fears and her anxieties are also devouring Marcos. And she doesn't have any like real reason to for why she asks these things other than just more of like 
that's just what everybody does. Kind exactly. Of, kind of internal logic. Like that if you push back even a little bit against, you're like the whole house of cards crumbles. But yes. And, but, you know, that that final when she finally gets her own domestic head because she keeps pestering Marcos and then she's literally has a cookbook that is on how to keep the head alive for as long as possible using an actual torture method. Right. right. The, the, and and so we have that in there that it's like it's real easy to be like, no, no, we would never do these things to other humans. But we have developed torture methods like death by a thousand cuts. Someone took the time to figure that out. So it's not like we don't have a history of that. And and you like you mentioned, you know, the atrocities of the Holocaust or every other genocide, including some of the ones we've committed here in the United States. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to. I want to talk about the one character we haven't talked about, Jasmine. Yeah, the Jasmine is the domesticated head, as they as they're referred to in the novel. Head meaning a human who has been bred to be eaten, and this mm-hmm. is she is a purebred um, yes. human, and that Marcos kind of gets gifted from one of the facilities that he goes to work at. He initially doesn't really doesn't want Jasmine and kind of keeps her outside, but then along the way kind of like brings her into the house and then ultimately has his has... way has his way with her. Yeah. Um, so he has he gets drunk and then right. and then we kind of understand that somewhere in that drunkenness uh that either like leads up to the drinking or the after or during, right, he has sex with Jasmine, which is actually considered, that is one of the taboos, right? Right. If you are caught having sex with a head, you will be consumed yourself, right? You will be slaughtered. So that's the taboo line, right? That's the line people have drawn in the sand. And yeah, and then he like brings her in and she's living with him uh, and she's pregnant with his child, which is important because he has lost, he lost his previous child. And um, we, we were talking about this before when we were still reading the novel, mm-hmm. that it was remarkable to see the loss of a child portrayed yes. in this way for a male protagonist. You, I think you had said uh, oftentimes when this kind of loss happens, typically in like fiction, a lot of times you just see the, the father figure just like so angry 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 like curse the world is terrible gurgur but you rarely see sadness or like yes. just true displays of like the actual loss it's just more yeah. of like an anger in a way that still is putting themselves first so i think it was interesting to see this kind of character that really did mourn the loss of his child and the emptiness of the space left by his wife also then that how that still does not then justify where he get where he goes but it's just an interesting way thing to see portrayed yeah i have a a lot of feelings about this element with jasmine in part because of where where it ends up right which i think is a really interesting place but right but first i don't know if i could be counted on reliably if you gave me a text and said is this written by a woman or a man right and and just or you know as someone who identifies as female or someone who identifies as male like i don't honestly know if i could relis- um reliably say 100% and, and it's by you know a male writer and then be correct and all that stuff um particularly because our understandings of of gender are so 
as they should be much more complicated than just that. But there are certain things that, that people who have presented as female and lived in a world that doesn't to this day feel that, that women are important worries about that, that not all men worried about. And one of them is rape, right? I was talking to someone, I was talking to a, a friend who was like, yeah, I would go over and hang out with some new coworker at their house and I wouldn't see a problem with that. And I was like, nope, I would never do that. And he shouldn't either, right? Like no one should just casually stranger danger it up. But my first instinct always, because I was taught starting in middle school that it was my responsibility to make sure I didn't get raped, right? Like, and and I bring that up because in a lot of post-apocalyptic narratives that are are very male-centric or sort of male-focused, there's never that additional fear of that element of being devoured. There's the fear of being killed. There's the fear of being enslaved. But rarely for especially the male characters, is there a fear of of all the other things that would guaranteed happen the moment we disband any of our rules. So to have a female author depict this with the casualness that she did, right? Where Marcus is just like, well, that happened. Yeah. I feel like if it had been... I feel like I would have been more upset if it had been a male writer because I would have felt like they were just saying, well, that's inevitable because what else are you going to do if you have a you know naked female in your presence? Whereas she was saying like that might that would be the way it would just happen because we, women's bodies are never valued, right? And have never been valued. And so it, it took on a different tone for me that that I think was really important because the whole time you're reading, you're trying to figure out, you know, does Marcos, is he going to fall in, in love with her? Because that's super weird. But yeah. We've seen that before. That's Pygmalion, right? Where you're falling in love with someone who who is your creation. Right. Um, or is he going to put her back into the shed after? Or is like, so it, it asks you all these questions. And for a while, I thought because he's getting so increasingly angry and upset about the way things are going. I thought it was being set up as, you know, this sort of really creepy, but because he's found the the love of a of a good woman, even if that woman's ahead, you know, like I thought it was going to go that direction and obviously it most certainly it, doesn't. It does not because by the end he when she gives birth to his new child, thus kind of fulfilling this thing, this loss that he has had throughout this entire novel, this clear inadequacy he feels because he's not been able to have this child. He, it, she gives birth to the child. His wife is there. He takes, he's Jasmine's in the other room and then he kills Jasmine. Yes, he kills Jasmine. And then he, and, and Cecilia is like, but don't do that. And then dot, 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 because she could have more children for us. And you're like, excuse me. And then then Marco says, yeah. Says she had the human look of a domesticated animal. And that's the last line of the book. Um, That's where it ends. There's no more. Um, So we are left with Marcus and Cecilia, his wife, holding this child that has been, that Jasmine had just given birth to. And Marcus coming back from just having killed her. And he says that. And so... There are lots of ways to kind of interpret that last line, but but I, I can't help but think about the fact that, you know, we often punish particularly animals for doing things that they only did because we made them do it, right? Like the number of times that the animals have to be put down because they attacked a human and it's like, but the human was in their space. 
maybe if you don't want to be attacked by a bear, you don't get up in the bear's grill. Like maybe that's, you know, maybe it's the human that should be suffering the repercussions, not the bear. But time and again, right, that's how we dictate justice, right, is that we say, well, even though the bear would have never done that on its own, because it did, we have to put it down. And so there's this sort of way in which that's how I read it, right, that Marcos was like, well, you know, it's she got too comfortable with this life and she would only get more comfortable and that's not an option. And then, you know, so we might as well take her out. How did how did you read the the end that that line? I, I think it just was too much to keep her around with Jasmine around would be too difficult because up until that point, Marcus had kind of clearly only been sustained by the fact that no one or nothing around him was really actively challenging these status quos besides him and his head. But keeping Jasmine and around and alive in the same house as Cecilia, uh, I think would be confronting too many truths about the world together in the same space for him to go on operating. And so he was mm-hmm. like, that. I think that is how it was just, that is yeah. like, and then so he that look of the domesticated animal was too much of a reminder of the truth of the world for Marcus. And so he was like, rather than be forced to acknowledge that every day, you put it, we you put it down like we did all the all of the rest of our domesticated animals. Uh, yes, I or that the rest of the society did, and yes. said it slaughtered all the all of the animals, including Marcus's yeah. former dogs, which he had to put down right. as well. Right, right, yeah. There's in the hands of a different author. This what would happen is he would get Jasmine, he would impregnate Jasmine, he right. would become increasingly infuriated with the system and how things are working. But there's all of these references of feeling like something is lodged in his throat. And then again, in the hands of a different author, he uh, and Jasmine, Jasmine would have the baby and then he would like flee b- with her because, you know, he can't live his life with her and even though they'd have a weird relationship that'd be a little bit more servant than like lover he would go and find a community of other people who've begun to fight the fight you know that's how i mean i've read young adult novels that weren't about cannibalism that have done almost the exact same plot right yeah but instead our author says you know all of the marcos's feelings are more because he's stressed and and because he just doesn't like to be told what to do than because he's going to fight the system there's that final scene where there's this other group of people we haven't talked about that are the scavengers right. who have been denied meat and are just like, but I need it and and live on the fringes of society. So these are the these are the people that aren't playing nicely, right? That are acting civil about it. And they attack and eat some head. And Marcos's solution is we have to put them down, right? Like if we don't put them down, they will just keep attacking the the delivery yeah, cart. Exactly. Yeah. And although he's disgusted by some things, like the scientist who you know there's the lab where they're experimenting on on head right to find out various cures and various things for science you know although he's disgusted by that the book ends with this realization that almost none of us are the heroes that break away right we might find a way to live with with what's happening or we might temporarily find a way to bend the rules so that it makes our lives better but most of us are not willing to lead a revolution and and most of us don't will actually actively do whatever it takes to stay complacent and complacent. Yeah. And I think that really good, that indifference really goes back to one of the uh, core ideas that this author is frightened about. Yes. Um, she references um, Hannah Arden's book on the report on about the Holocaust in Germany. And it was the subtitle, a report on the banality of evil, which really just talked about how the main reason in which 
the Holocaust and the Germans' rise to power was really able to be so effective was not necessarily because of the Nazi rulers, but because of the larger society's Mm -hmm. indifference. Mm -hmm. The massacre executed by bureaucrats would not have been possible without the indifference of these good citizens. And I I think that's really what Marcus represents is in a lot of ways is this like textbook definition of a good, good citizen. And there's even that really intense interrogation scene in which another one of these good citizens, another one of the reporters of the law comes in and almost catches Marcos and Jasmine, which would have sent him to the meat factory. Mm -hmm. But because Marcos has this bureaucratic government connection, he's able to get around and skirt the rules and get away with these horrific acts. And this guy just he knows something is wrong. The yeah. the other worker who has come to investigate Marcos, he knows. You can tell Marcos can feel it. The other worker knows something is wrong because he asks that question where he's like, wouldn't it be so easy if everybody could get away with not showing me things and all you have to do is sign the paper? But he doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. He just walks out the door. Like, yeah. And I think it's a fascinating scene because then he goes to the scientist plant after that where marcos gets to have a similarly like grr pipe fight the man moment where he's like you're the problem i'm great and then he goes back immediately after that and that's juxtaposed by him making the call and being like the scavenger's gotta die yeah and then going home and putting and like killing jasmine so that he can have his idyllic family intact and he doesn't have to think too hard about the horrors of the world Yes, so much of this book is Marcos being uncomfortable with things, right? He blames the transition on his dad's deterioration. He says that, you know, his dad was doing fine, but that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. He talks about how tragic it was to to lose, you know, to have to kill his dogs, about how it's it's one of the reasons that he has such a separation between him and and his sister because of their attitudes. But you're so right. At the end of the day, he not only has sort of normalized some of the, the these behaviors, but he's in some ways worse because he's doing his atrocities for personal reasons, right? Right. Everyone else is doing them because that's just, quote, how it's done. And so so the book is asking us, which is actually worse, right? Is it worse to have a complicit society or is it worse for someone to do atrocities for selfish reasons? And I think, you know, the answer is, is like maybe both are really, really terrible. And And the fact that Marcos knows Jasmine, right? Jasmine has been living with him for nine months intimately even if not sexually although that's intimated intimately i mean they shower together you know all this stuff and so the fact that that he's able to kill the one head he knows the best when he has felt uncomfortable watching nameless head uh, get destroyed it was a it was a ending that i did not anticipate that i think is one of the reasons that this book earned five stars for me because it it was the only way it could go, but I didn't know it was the way it was gonna go, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think oftentimes, like, when you have when you have stories as vast as this, you can kind of get lost by the end. And the resolution is so kind of, like, granular, because you try to resolve the tension felt within the larger world mm-hmm. and society. So, like, we could have tried to attempt to have some, like, resolution at the meat facility or something. Yes. And and I think it would have been a, a decent enough ending, but this is a powerful and just ending by going back and, and tying everything up in Marcus's home. Because we go back to we're not in the we're not in the larger society. We're not in this meatpacking facility that is supposedly making Marcus do all these things. We're not in the rest of the world. 
that has normalized uh, all of these terrible things that Marcus supposedly disagrees with. We're in Marcus's home, the place where you, in theory, get to have the most control and make your own rules about how you live your life and act out things. And Marcus chooses then to put the society's rules in his own house. And that is terrifying. It's a very horrific ending, and it really just ties this book up in a very personal manner that is deeply scary. And I agree. One of the one of my favorite things that we have gotten to read and discuss for this yeah. podcast that I had not I had not read this until you had suggested it, and we were talking about doing our cannibal unit. Yes. And yes. I'm just so ex- happy that we did, and I cannot recommend this book enough. Well, that is our discussion, and I feel like we could have talked quite a bit longer. It's it's amazing how how a book that again is is not that many pages has no, so many layers to unpack. Uh, in yeah. fact, I've been wrestling with you know is this a text that I would feel comfortable assigning to undergrads? And because it is graphic, right? It is undeniably graphic. Mm-hmm. But gosh, certainly darn some it. truth to those yeah. to the to the commentators who say yes. who just describe it as being overly graphic. It's, it is very graphic. I'm not going right. to damn, but it that. is. It, it just I think it's such like you said, it's such a good text and it's such an important text mm-hmm. because it it shows why horror matters. And, and that's pretty neat. So yeah. our cannibal unit was brief, but but there it is. Tony, what are we doing next? We're returning back to film. But what is our, our next film? We are going to be discussing a 2014 American Persian film called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. It's a vampire movie, so we're moving away from cannibalism. But we're sticking with female horror creators. Yes, and uh, non... Though it's an American Persian, it's also a Persian film, so getting some more non-American texts. uh, Yeah, that's true, because all three of our... uh, Starting with Raw, right? We've had three texts by females, but none of them have been American. That's exciting. So... Watch that film uh, so that you're you're ready for that discussion. Don't be put off by the fact that it is in black and white. It's it's really good, uh, cinematically speaking, and it's it's very good in terms of narrative. And I think it'll add another nice layer, even if it isn't directly a cannibal text explicitly. Uh, it still connects very much to this sort of arc that we're doing. Uh, Tony, in between listening to this episode and of course getting ready for our next episode, what should people listening do? Well, they can check out our YouTube account, which is linked in this podcast description where we upload some additional content related to things that we discuss on this podcast. You can also go to our social medias, which are linked in the description of this podcast and follow us there. That's also a great place to get in touch with us. If you want to just like chat with us or tell us what you think about the horror text we're discussing, or if you have an idea for a future episode, you can get in touch with our social medias or our emails. And as always, if you just, wherever you're listening to this podcast on, if you give us a rating, it really helps us out there. So those are just a couple of the things that you can do in the meantime. Excellent. Thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. Uh, Thank you so much to Jackson for editing the podcast and have a spooktacular day.